So I think that's me. Just move that away. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so Ron, maybe we won't put it on screen because it'll be a little bit different then. Reading from Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 1 and reading through verse 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the Roman emperor, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Last weekend, uh, I had the privilege of having my sister Cecilia and her husband, Bob, visiting our home. And if you were here last week, you know that they took the service. And Bob and Cecilia have been missionaries in Indonesia since 1979, and they're returning to Indonesia in a couple of months. And here last week, they told us very briefly uh, what they'll be doing there, Bible translation primarily. And we heard a story about that illustrated the spiritual bondage that the tribal people had been in for so long. Now, what Bob and Celia didn't tell you last week, what they didn't have time to tell you, but what they did tell us in our home, were their early experiences in Indonesia. When they arrived in Indonesia in 1979, they spent time in intensive Bible study or language study, but also in cultivating relationships with a tribal village that they hoped to be able to move into and live among the villagers. 
But the villagers were very suspicious of these white Westerners. And after some time, the village said, you cannot live here among us. And when Bob and Celia returned home after their first term as missionaries, they had not yet even established themselves in a village. On their second term, they had a very similar experience. A village was very hesitant to have them live among them. And eventually, the mission agency that Bob and Celia went to Indonesia with said to them, uh, look, it's been almost eight years. Um, if this village doesn't allow you to move in, um, we think that you should pull out and we'll find another mission field for you. And when Bob and Celia passed that on to the villagers, the villagers then said, oh, why don't you come in and live among us? Not because they were particularly more trusting, but they didn't want to lose out on some of the, the benefits like access to medicine and those kinds of things. And so after two full terms of mission work, almost nine years, Bob and Celia were just barely established in the village where they would then minister the gospel of Jesus. It was almost four years after that that the first villager came to the Lord, actually three of them at that time. And over time after that, there were more, and today the, the entire adult population of the village is Christian. They're followers of Jesus. They have experienced reconciliation with a tribe on the other side of the mountain with whom they had been bitter and violent enemies for so long. These villagers regularly make the hike down to the coast. It takes all day to do their trading and their shopping, and then they come back on another day's hike. And by their being at the coast, they have sparked a revival in one of the, the dead uh, state kind of churches that had been established on the coast for a long time. And that church now has a solid faith and a biblical foundation and spiritual health. And my sister t said to us, after telling us kind of these things, she said, and you know what? We just praise God. We feel like we got a front row seat to what God is doing. But all of this took such a long time. After four years, not in a village. After almost another five, just barely established. After three more, almost 12 full years of coming to Indonesia. The first new Christian. Do you think that they ever had moments of discouragement? Do you, do you think they ever wondered, are we approaching this all wrong? Have we seriously missed something about God's call on our life? And some of you, maybe many of you, know what that's like. You have engaged in what you felt sure was God's direction and call for you. You have sought to speak and to act in your workplace as a gracious but explicit missionary to those around you. You felt a call to catalyze a ministry in the church or outside the church, and it just seemed to go nowhere. Or you have prayed for your children or for someone else, or you felt called to pray for maybe even this church, and have prayed for years but have not seen the answer that you thought that you would see. We all know at some level the reality of discouragement at some point along the way as we seek God and try to listen to his leading. Maybe you felt like you have failed him. Maybe you felt like he has failed you and didn't come through. But discouragement 
is not just the province of us who think of ourselves as sort of rank-and-file Christians. Even the greats experience discouragement. The Puritan Cotton Mather wrote in his journal, greatly tempted to atheism today. Martin Luther experienced long periods of doubt and depression. David wondered where God was. You know that if you've read in the Psalms. Elijah felt like a failure and asked God to take his life. And the Apostle Paul, I think, knew discouragement as well. As we are moving through the book of Acts, we come today to Acts chapter 18, where Paul comes to the city of Corinth. Acts, you'll remember, is the outworking of Jesus' word to his followers that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so chapters 1 to 7 describe the ministry in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12 are concerned primarily with the expanded ministry to Judea and Samaria. In chapter 13 through the end of the book, focus on the ministry of the church to the Gentile world and ends up in Rome, which would be the center of the Roman Empire and, as far as New Testament people are concerned, the center of the world. And the way that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes this spread of the witness to Jesus is by these repeated references to the increase of the word of God and the simultaneous growth of the church that goes with it. You've heard me talk about that before. The word of God is the testimony concerning Jesus as the apostles witnessed it and as God had declared it in the scriptures. And wherever this word is proclaimed, the church grows. And this is the note that sounds all through the book of Acts. This is the thread that ties the whole book together. Chapter 2, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Chapter 5, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied exceedingly. Chapter 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16, verse 5, they increased in number. Chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. And all throughout the book of Acts, you read these kinds of things. And you see other repeated references to the apostles preaching the word or reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and that this person or that family or this group of people came to the Lord, believed and turned to the Lord. And so the advance of the word and the growth of the church, that's what defines the book of Acts. And the central figure in the ministry, of, ministry to the Gentiles is the apostle Paul. And we've been kind of tracking with him ever since chapter 13. And now, in chapter 18, he comes to Corinth. Paul's missionary strategy seems to be that he would target the major cities, and from there, the gospel would radiate outward. For example, chapter 13, verse 49, and in chapter 19, verse 10, we read that the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. And so as the major center of the region, Paul comes to Corinth. Corinth, just to tell you a little bit about it, was in Greece. 
It was on the bridge of land that connected the Macedonian province to Achaia in the south. And because Corinth kind of straddled the land that bridged those provinces, um, it was on the center of, of a north-south trade route and an east-west trade route. So all kinds of people came to Corinth. It was prosperous. About 500,000 people lived there, which is huge for that time. Corinth was cosmopolitan. Corinth was prosperous. But Corinth was also the sin city of its time. Above the city, overlooking it, was a terrace on which stood what they called the Acro-Corinth. In Athens, he had the Acro, the Acropolis. In Corinth, he had the Acro-Corinth. And on the Acro-Corinth was this, this temple to Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love, by which I think they really meant the goddess of sex. And the worship of Aphrodite involved ritual sex with prostitutes, temple prostitutes, both male and female. And Corinth had a reputation for immorality and for promiscuous sex. And that reputation was reflected in the vulgar slang of the day. For example, to Corinthianize was to fornicate. But we would use a different word for that. What we would crassly call a slut, they called a Corinthian girl. And if you're taken aback by my using that word in church, you get a sense of the reputation of Corinth. It wasn't nice. This sheds light, by the way, on why Paul had to address gender issues and marital relationships and sexual sin in his two letters to the Corinthians. I mean, they were, they were messed up when it came to male, female, and the sexual dynamic. And yet at the same time, kind of like Las Vegas, which banks its reputation on its being sin city, like Las Vegas, Corinth prospered, was doing well. And so Paul comes to this city. And when he comes, he is discouraged. I'm going to back up again. This is Paul's second missionary journey. On his first journey with Barnabas, he experienced all kinds of hostility, but also had an incredibly fruitful ministry. And so on their return home, they could share how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's chapter 14, 27. And that their account of the conversion of the Gentiles brought great joy to the brothers. That's chapter 15. That was their first journey. Their second journey, Paul's second journey, is very different. It began with a bitter rupture between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and his new companion, Silas and Timothy, then found God preventing them from going where they were trying to go. We would call that God closing the doors on their ministry. And when they finally got an explicit call from God to go to Macedonia, they went and promptly found themselves being beaten and imprisoned by the authorities in Philippi and then being asked to leave the city. In Thessalonica, Paul's ministry sparked a riot and mob violence, and the few believers hustled Paul out of the city as soon as they could, under cover of darkness. In the next city, which was Berea, they had a much more favorable response at first, only to have people from Thessalonica then come and stir up the crowds there. And once again, the new Christians feel compelled to, compelled to kind of hustle Paul out of the city for his own safety. 
And so he goes then to Athens, and he's waiting there for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. And in Athens, instead of violent opposition, he's treated with this mixture of contempt and even amusement as he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul then leaves Athens without even waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up. Now imagine if a missionary came to our church asking for us to support them financially, and they had had the same kinds of experiences as Paul had. If Paul came here with his slideshow and showed us the kinds of things that were happening everywhere he went, I'm not sure that we'd be all that quick to support them. We'd probably pull them aside and say, are you sure that being a career missionary is God's calling for you? Maybe your gifts are more suited to working in a popsicle stick factory or something like that. Paul had had a pretty rough go this time around. And it's out of all this that he now comes to Corinth. And it's no wonder that he later wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul is discouraged. He is tired. Maybe he enters Corinth with a certain apprehension of facing more of what he's already faced, anger and enemies and violence. So the first thing he does, actually, is he gets a job. I don't know if he felt like pulling himself out of the ministry or not, but he gets a job working with Aquila and Priscilla uh, at their tent-making business. Aquila is a Jew. Uh, Both Aquila and Priscilla apparently are Christians who have come to Corinth because Jews have been kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. So Paul works his nine-to-five job, but he's still a missionary. He, He can't help it. And despite whatever discouragement he entered Corinth with, he loves Jesus, and he is no quitter. And so the Sabbath days find him doing what he always does. He's in the Sabbath day versus... He's in the synagogue... Verses 4 and 5, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul declared Jesus in the synagogues, what he always does. He did it in Thessalonica. He's going to do it in Ephesus. He's doing it now in Corinth. Paul declared Jesus. And again, later, he wrote to the Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified. A few verses later, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Maybe, maybe remembering this, this lofty but empty rhetoric he had just come from in Athens, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I keep coming back to this point every week as we go through Acts because it seems like the book of Acts keeps coming back to this point. That Jesus is the center of God's work in the world. Jesus, therefore, is the center of the life of the church and the proclamation of Jesus is the center of the ministry of the church. The day that the church stops talking about Jesus is the day that it stops being the church, by definition. We feed the poor in Jesus' name. If we're going to help anyone on their spiritual journey, we introduce them to Jesus and help them to walk with him for his glory. 
If we talk about God, we must talk about Jesus, or else it's not the true God that we're talking about. And so Paul proclaimed Jesus as he always did. And so, of course, what happened next was what always happened to Paul. The Jews oppose and revile him. And I don't know if you noticed, as I read the scripture, if, if you notice what Paul then says to those in the synagogue when they reject his proclamation of Jesus. He said, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Paul has faithfully declared to them the word of God concerning Jesus Christ. We know basically what he said, because even though it's not recorded here, we know that Anytime anyone in Acts preaches, they say the same thing. That in fulfillment of God's word through the prophets, Jesus died for sin, was raised to life. Jesus is God's son. Forgiveness is found in him alone. Jesus is God's only provision to deal with sin. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. This is what Paul declared in the synagogue. This is what he opened the scriptures and reasoned with the people about. He reasoned, he persuaded, he proved even that Jesus was the Christ. He fulfilled his responsibility in the Corinthian synagogue, but they rejected the gospel. And so they remained under God's judgment. See, because the gospel is not an invitation. It is a call. And the proper response to the gospel, the proper response to Jesus is not to accept him, but to obey the gospel, to submit to the lordship of Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the priests don't just become Christians, they become obedient to the faith. In 1 Peter 4, 17 refers to the judgment of, judgment of those who do not obey the gospel. And so the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of Jesus, is not a neutral act. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. The rejection of the gospel is a rebellious act. And Paul, who faithfully declared God's word concerning Jesus to the Jews, and they not only not accepting it, but actively opposing it and reviling Paul for speaking it, Paul now says, fine then. Your blood is not on my head. I have fulfilled my responsibility. Your blood is on your own head. So Paul then focuses his future ministry on the Gentiles, and many of them believe. And ironically, we read that even the ruler of the Jewish synagogue comes to believe, and his household. In verse 8, we see that. But other than that, though, the experience to this point is just a replay of just about every city that Paul has been to. In fact, I think that Luke could have saved a lot of ink if he had just said, Paul came to Corinth and had his usual experience, and then added whatever the Greek words for yada, yada, yada are. And we, when we read this, we are just waiting for Paul to get beaten, to get kicked out of town. But instead, there's something marvelous that happens. Acts 18 and verse 9. And the Lord, whenever Acts talks about the Lord, they mean Jesus particularly, not 
God generally, or even the Father specifically, Jesus. And Jesus, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And maybe Paul himself was waiting for the hammer to fall, as it always did. But Jesus says, no. This time, you stay. You keep doing what I've called you to do. This time, you will not be harmed. This time, you will not be forced out. And Paul ends up staying in Corinth. We read in verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and a half. Paul's never made it that long in any city so far. And Jesus comes to Paul and gives him essentially these three encouragements. First of all, he says, I am with you. Paul, I'm with you. This is the greatest encouragement of all. When Joshua was about to take over from Moses and lead the Israelites into the promised land, Moses encouraged Joshua with these words, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. It's Deuteronomy 30, verse 8, by the way. In Psalm 23, we know these words. David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. And how many people in history have experienced persecution or crisis or disaster and have been carried by the simple knowledge that God was with them? They knew that Jesus was in the prison cell with them. They knew that Jesus was holding them in their time of painful loss. They knew in a time of the devastating diagnosis that they were not out of God's hand, even for a moment. When Jesus first commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28, what did he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, to obey what I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, always. There will never be a time when I am not with you, he says. Paul, carry on. Do not be silent in the face of opposition. I am with you. And then secondly, Jesus says, this time, Paul, things will be different. No one will attack you to harm you. And sure enough, we read an episode of that in verses 12 to 17. Sometime early in Paul's ministry, the Jews attempt their usual opposition. They grab Paul and drag him before the proconsul, who is the Roman leader, kind of a mini-governor of that city and region. They drag Paul before Gallio is his name. Now, it was Roman policy at the time that any religious teaching had to be sort of state-sanctioned. There were religions or uh, spiritual experiences or groups that were considered illicit, not sanctioned, not legal, and others that were permitted to be exercised. So the Jews dragged Paul before this Roman official, and their accusation, essentially, is that his teaching 
runs counter to Judaism, which was one of the accepted religions. You could be a Jew and practice that religion. And they're hoping to get whatever Paul is teaching kind of condemned. It's different than what's legal. So make it illegal for Paul to do what he's doing. That's essentially what they're trying to do. But Gallio refuses to hear the complaint and kicks them out. And what Gallio is doing essentially is by his inaction, he's setting a precedent and he's legitimizing Paul's ministry as not being counter to state policy. In other words, for the first time on his journey, Paul has formal legal permission from the highest authority in the city to continue preaching. And so he does for a year and a half. The mob, though, that brings Paul to Gallio, for whatever reason, they turn on Sosthenes, which is hard to say three times fast, and who is the ruler of the synagogue, apparently who replaces Crispus, who'd become a follower of Jesus. And Sosthenes is publicly beaten. I don't know why. Maybe they were angry at him because he botched their attempts to destroy Paul's ministry. Um, Some suggest he was beaten by kind of the non-Jewish mob. I don't know. But it's interesting that when Paul then writes the letter of 1 Corinthians... Chapter 1, verse 1, identifies the letter as coming from Paul and our brother Sosthenes. So somehow, maybe because of this, Sosthenes has become a follower of Jesus too. Maybe because he got beaten by his own people. Don't know. But at any rate, for the first time, Paul is the object of a conscious attack from those who oppose him, and he is not harmed. Instead, he is legitimized. He goes on to preach for 18 months. And for Paul, this is about as close as he ever gets to buying a house and putting down roots. Jesus has told him, you will not be harmed. The third encouragement from Jesus in verse 10 is, I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, don't stop proclaiming. Don't be silent. I am with you. You will not be harmed and your ministry will bear fruit. There are people in the city, Jesus says, who I lay claim to. Not just a few, not just a a pocket-fledgling church like in the other cities, but I have many here who are mine. You might remember uh, Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has this vision of God and he is called and appointed to the prophetic ministry appointed to preach, to deliver God's word to God's people. But in Isaiah's case, God warns Isaiah that no one is going to listen. Isaiah's proclamation will lead to judgment for the people's hardness of heart and for their refusal to respond to the word of God. And Isaiah's message to the people includes, hear but don't understand, see but don't perceive, And when Isaiah asks God, for how long, Lord? God's response is, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses are empty, and the land is desolate. How would you like to start your ministry that way? God comes to you and says, this is what I want you to do with your life, and it will have absolutely no impact. None. Thanks, Lord. But to Paul, Jesus says something different. He says, there are many here who are mine. There's a couple of reminders in these words of Jesus. First of all, that ministry isn't about Paul. 
It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Paul's preaching will not result in fruitfulness for the sake of Paul's ministry. There won't be disciples of Paul. There's not the first church of Paul of Corinth. It's not about people going to hear Paul's speaking or buying his CDs or attending his worship concerts or whatever, joining his church. They're Jesus people. They belong to Jesus. And Paul's role is to elevate and exalt Jesus so that his people can see him and respond to him and come to him. And so notice then, too, that Jesus, before the bulk of Paul's ministry, Jesus already lays claim to people. They are mine, Jesus says. Now you go and proclaim me to them. Jesus identifies them as his before they have chosen to respond to the gospel. In other words, when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, it's because Jesus has first set his sights on them. I am a Christian today, not because I heard the gospel and responded to it. I'm a Christian because God changed my heart and drew me to himself. His grace was stronger than my sin. His love overcame my rebellion. He acted. I responded. He said of me, you are mine. Before I ever said of him, I am yours. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his children. We were chosen. It is by grace we have been saved by faith, not by works. Paul said all of these things in his letter to the Ephesians. There are many here who are mine, says Jesus, and I know who they are. Paul, go and introduce them to me that they might know me. What incredible assurance that Jesus gives to Paul. I am with you. You will not be harmed, and your preaching will bear much fruit, for I've already chosen many who are mine. Do you think that that lit Paul's fire again? So again, let's go back to where we started. Do you know what it is to be discouraged? Do you know what it is to pursue what you are sure is God's direction for you, only to face roadblocks, only to not see that it's making a difference? Are you praying for someone? Are you catalyzing a ministry? Are you living for Jesus and talking about Jesus in your various environments and not seeing it make any difference? Maybe you're even dismissed and mocked for it. Are you living with integrity and paying a price? Have you made choices that honor God's name and wonder why God hasn't responded in kind and that life has become hard? Jesus' words to Paul were his words to Paul in a very particular circumstance. Paul was in Corinth doing a particular ministry. But Jesus' words fit just as well, I think, for you on this day. God is with you. The promise of God's presence is no less. It's not diminished. It's, it's no less guaranteed to you than it was to Joshua or David or Elijah or Jesus or Paul. I cannot guarantee, on the other hand, that you will not be harmed. Jesus doesn't guarantee that to us either, free from illness, immune from persecution. And in fact, 
Paul's protection was for his ministry in Corinth. Later on in Jerusalem, he was arrested, spent two years in prison, ultimately martyred, executed in Rome. Free from harm? Well, as long as he was about the work in Corinth that God called him to do, yes. God had something he was going to do with Paul in Corinth, and God was not going to let anything happen to Paul until that work was done. There is a calling of God on my life, and God will preserve me until that calling is fulfilled to his satisfaction. But even then, and maybe more than that, there is an ultimate security. Jesus will not lose any who are his. Even death's grip is slippery, and there is God's guarantee of rescue even from it. Persecution is temporary, and the faithfulness and the trust of God's people will be vindicated in eternity. There will be no one who says, my trust in God, my commitment to Jesus in the face of any circumstances was misplaced. I made a mistake when I listened to God and followed his calling on my life. Nobody, nobody will say that. The trials of this world, even my death for him, is far outweighed by the glory of eternity. And the words of Jesus, well done, make my worst suffering seem petty by comparison. Ultimately, nothing that I did for Jesus was a sacrifice. All of God's people will say that. Every single one. No one will look back and say, I should have ignored God on that one. No one. And finally, as Jesus encouraged Paul with the knowledge that Paul's preaching would bear fruit, you can be confident that whatever God has called you to do, he will bring it to completion. If he has compelled you to pray for somebody, it is because God is going to act in the life of that person. George Mueller, a famous Christian of almost 200 years ago, um, founded an orphanage for tons and tons of orphans. And he prayed for somebody, several people, fervently that they would come to faith in Christ. He prayed for over 40 years for some people. He prayed until his death. And for a couple of them, it was after he died that they came to faith. If God is urging you to pray, if you can't get off of your heart this need to pray for somebody, it's because God is going to do something in the life of that person. It might be tomorrow, it might be in the year 2060, but God will bring it to completion. If God has led you to a ministry, it is because God will accomplish what he intends, either in that ministry or in you, and probably in both. If you feel a real burden to be the fragrance of Christ in your neighborhood or your school or your workplace, God will honor his work in you by transforming you and, more than likely, impacting the people around you, though you may not know it or see it. I had the privilege a few months ago of hearing from somebody how my interactions with them 15 years ago had contributed to their own journey of faith, and they are now walking with Jesus. And it makes sense that God would do this, though we might not always see it. Jesus himself said in John 15, if you abide in me and if my words remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Probably. No, 
you will bear much fruit, period. You just, it'll happen. Whatever God wants to do in you, he will do. If you remain in me, Jesus says, and my words remain in you. And so for a couple of missionaries in Indonesia, their success didn't lay in the fact that a village came to faith in Jesus and had an impact beyond their village. Their success was simple faithfulness to God's call. They did what they knew that God was calling them to do. Success lies in faithfulness. It doesn't lie in results. Our job is just to point to Jesus, to live like him, to love like he did, to have his name on our lips, to not be silent. And so in prayer, in ministry, in character, in work, in relationships, in a particular calling, or just in our day-to-day walk with Jesus, be encouraged. The words of Christ to Paul, you can lay claim to. Continue to declare Jesus with your words and your life. Jesus is with you. And Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, even to the end of the age. And he will accomplish his purposes in you and in others through you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Let's pray. Lord, the incredible favor of your constant presence with us sometimes lament the fact that you are invisible to us and your voice is hard to discern and fall into the trap of thinking that you're some distance away but you are more faithful than us and you are faithful to your word that you will never leave nor forsake. And my prayer this morning for us, your people here, is that you'd remind us of that a lot, that when we are tempted to think that either we have strayed from you or you have backed away from us, that you will remind us often that you are always with us and that we'd cling to that promise and that by leaning on your constant presence, we would have the strength to be faithful the wisdom to discern your call and that the character of Christ would be formed in us in such a way that it has ripple effects wherever we go on those around us. I pray that for each of us. I pray that for us as a church, that your presence would be so powerful here that we could not help but be aware of it as we declare your name. We exist for you, and we remember that today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, encourage us and help us to be faithful. For the glory of God the Father, through the glory of Jesus Christ, and by the work and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.